Ah, spring. Birds chirping, sun shining, and crocuses, daffodils, tulips, all blossoming to reveal a tiny, bloody skull in the middle of their flowers as a special treat for every Wrong Station Patreon subscriber. Join in on the fun by clicking the link in the description to visit the Wrong Station Patreon. Discover bonus episodes, behind-the-scenes content, tabletop RPG modules, a book club, ad-free listening, and many, many more obscenities. Dip your toe in our black waters with a seven-day free trial today. You may wish to adjust the dial you're currently tuned into. The wrong station. Twilight down at the Drill Barn Muse, with the factory silent and the sky a fading shade of azure behind the red brick dreamscape, and the strange geometry of dying sunlight tracing curves and asymptotes, all red and gold and unexpected, through the narrow paths and passageways, the glassless upper windows and black broken teeth of glass among the derelicts. Vivian walked alone. Maybe she knew she wasn't supposed to, in a part of town like this, and maybe she'd been raised to think it improper for a young lady to go unaccompanied in any part of town, no matter how respectable. But she went alone. She loved to feel the cool of the spring breeze coming off the rain-damp bricks. She loved to feel the hard echo of her boots in those silent, godless galleries. And one night, she came across... A goblin. Strange to say. Just past sunset, and the blades of gold and violet light had sighed one another leaving the world turned, she found the echo of a campfire flickering against a clear story window's arch, angled down in the bowels of some forsaken mill. Of course, she knew better than to go and look. After all, no person living in the drill bar muse could be anything but dangerous and desperate. Yet, curiosity got the better of her. She crept closer to that old building, to its disused and violated lower wooden shutters, where cracks of gold winked out into the twilight. She could feel the tapping of her heart like a small brass hammer. And for someone who had lived so much of her life all swaddled in lace and smothered up in black bombazine, the excitement was like cool air. She bent her head to one of the golden cracks, its pale slash fell across her eye, but she couldn't find a good angle to see inside. Crept further along the wall of rusted bricks and found a door not fully shut. She rested her hand against it, rough touch of splinters and the softness of her fingertips. Then let the weight of her breath carry it slightly, 
slowly open. Within, a strange, neglected temple was revealed. Old machines bent like prostrated giants to worship at an empty altar. Firelight casted itself like garlands on the upper vaults. A low voice muttering amongst those empty spaces. As she leaned precarious through that rust-hinged door, she saw the speaker, hunched in the midst of all that immensity, low figure framed in profile against a fire built from burning dross. A goblin. She knew right away that it was a goblin, for all that such things only lived in children's books. The green, hunching shoulders of waxy skin lit lurid by the reddish light. The bald head and pointed ears. The great nose, the black and yellow slitted eyes. The peg-like, fish-like spikes of tooth within his blackish gums. Yet he was not quite from a fairy tale. For one thing, he looked frighteningly strong. The long arms heavy with working muscle the hands like mauls where they rested on his ragged knees. Not as tall as a man, but stronger than one, like a bold chimpanzee she'd seen at the zoological gardens. He was cooking some sort of stew, an iron pot suspended by an iron triangle at the fire. A heavy, curved sword lay on the flaking cement beside him. It appeared to have been cold-forged out of varied shapes and types of metal, heterogeneous and jagged, its grip a moldy strop of rawhide, half unwound. What exactly he was muttering to himself, she could not catch. Only vehement scraps spat out here and there with the force of teeth, the language appalling even to she, who'd long since left Silkwater Ark Society for a garret flat in Leedshaw Court. Suddenly, though she'd made no sound, his head snapped around in her direction. Some instinct had drawn his yellow gaze toward her darkened end of the foundry, and his lips drew back. He hissed like a reptile, and then he was abruptly on his feet, the blade in hand, his flat, hard footsteps thundering toward her. She turned and fled. Vivian airlight, footsteps light as glass as she sprinted down the empty laneways, corridors, and cuts and malls of drill barn mews and the moon was rising white. Yet, for all her lightness, the heavy buildings of the mews drew in on every side. She quickly found herself lost and out of breath, the buildings purple-black this time of night, and all landmarks blurred as fear and pounding breath narrowed her vision. The sound of hard footsteps growing louder behind her. She darted down an alley and found herself faced with high walls on all three sides. Trapped, her heart withered, for a second, she gave herself up as lost. And then a voice came from above, a short cough to draw attention, and she looked up to see a dark figure leaning dangerously from an upper story window to offer down a hand. She bounded forward, vaulted onto the battered lid of a rusted hopper, and leaped. For a moment, hung on the air and began to fall. But then a hand caught hers in midair, iron strong around the wrist, and swung her in toward the wall. She kicked up off rough bricks, gray scarf blowing silver in the murey night, and ascended like a nighthawk, disappearing through the darkness of an upper window. Firm arms pulled her aside, and both she and her rescuer watched with bated breath at the alley below. For thudding heartbeats, they saw nothing. Then the goblin slowly surfaced from shadow into the moonlight, 
panting and muttering curses, that strange sword dragging at his ankles so it growled up sparks of melon-colored light. He came to a halt at the dead end, then, with a low snarl, swept his black and yellow gaze across the moon-washed walls, lingering a moment at their empty upper window. Then he muttered and turned, dragging his blade away behind him into the catacombs of Drill Barn Muse. Vivian's rescuer relaxed slowly, letting the young woman slip from her arms. Only now that the danger had passed did Vivian recognize the smell of sour sweat, old urine, rotting teeth, and stale liquor. Stepping back, she thought for a moment she was looking at an old woman. Then, as her eyes adjusted to the darkness of the upper floor, she realized the woman who had pulled her to safety was no more than a few years older than she, if even that. She was square-framed, with forearms shaped by labor in some discarded mill, and with hands like cracked pumice and veins like black wire. Her jaw-length, wavy hair cracked by the elements, her teeth embarrassed by their lack of quorum, her eye-whites red and pupils yellow-green from long-term cat-jaw use. I saw you running from above. The rescuer jerked her chin across the open rooftops, voice raw, sounding painful to the touch. I know my way through the catwalks, so I followed you. Thank you. Thank you. Vivian's heart still trembled like a bird's. I'm Vivian. I... Ren, said the other woman. I used to work here in the mills. Now I just come for... The light. Vivian finished the sentence for her. And as she did, the full moon rolled into the frame of the open window. And they both felt that light pooling on their skin and they could feel the reflected warmth and pressure of the far-off sun, and they could feel it on each other's skin, though they stood separated by unbreachable divides. And then they could feel that same warm pressure falling on the leaves of raw weeds that spiraled up amongst the crumbling wreckage of the mews. They could feel it reflected in the crystal of last night's rainwater still trailing dewdrops through corroded eaves, they could feel the night wind divided by its slow, warm, slanting beams. And as they stood together, their eyes slowly lifted as one to the window, where the pregnant moon now stood framed the size of worlds against the sky. Their hands crept together in wonder, fear at this epiphany. And one hour lasted forty years as they stood watching slow erosions wear across the drill barn mews, an entropy invincible but not despairing, an entropy of joy profound and inexpressible relief. Then the moon rolled past the window frame. Sempaternal time gave way to time mundane, and they remembered themselves and released one another's hands with little noises of embarrassment. Yet when they dared glance up, their eyes met and they knew they shared a secret knowledge which was at the crux of them both. And though Vivian fled in silence that night, she returned in the weeks to come, and found Wren waiting in the silence and moonlight of that altar at the dead-end alley with the rusted hopper and the scratch marks of the goblin blade. In time, their silent meditations gave way to an easy intimacy, one night, in yellow moonlight and dry-blown leaves, the summer wind filled them up like dandelion clocks, 
and their feathers blew away from naked, kneeling bones to mingle over the rooftops of that desolated, vibrant quarter of the city. When the sun came back and restored their flesh, it was entangled underneath that window, and each looked away from the other in mingled fear, regret, and shame, not knowing what the Congress had made of them. Ah, spring! Birds chirping, sun shining, and crocuses, daffodils, tulips, all blossoming to reveal a tiny, bloody skull in the middle of their flowers as a special treat for every Wrong Station Patreon subscriber. Join in on the fun by clicking the link in the description to visit the Wrong Station Patreon. Discover bonus episodes, behind-the-scenes content, tabletop RPG modules, a book club, ad-free listening, and many, many more obscenities. Dip your toe in our black waters with a seven-day free trial today. Another night. Another awful party. Ashwind Hall. Its yawning gothic spaces gaudied up with bulbs, deceptic gaslights, and headache-colored blister lamps of glowing neon. The music grinding and dysphonic, all captured, measured, and extracted from the captive brains of scratched-up dollar slave musicians. And underneath that strangled din, the fractal cacophonies of Georgette dresses rustle and swish, of knee-high leather boots a creak, and dinner jackets slicing velvet silent, velvet smooth amongst the chitter of the crowd. See forced smiles and obligate laughter everywhere, all reflected in the ubiquitous mirrors, backscattered, splintered, and repeated over every shoulder in endless depths of appearance, never letting someone simply without reflexive modes of panoptic reobservance, The chuckle of champagne down at a breast-shaped coops. The clattered shake of burning liquors mingled up with bitter wormwood and some shining steel casket. The slop and clap of hybrid fluids birthing forth through metal teeth and down into their cut-glass graves. Vivian Airlight, swaying alone and listless in some vague corner of the room. And who is this? And who is this? A harsh voice assailed her as someone's cold hand pressed champagne to hers. Someone's dark-haired daughter with the eyes as long and black as night? Carolyn Slingers, her uncle's latest. Beautiful, yet jagged, and only so much older than Vivian herself. We haven't seen you, darling. Haven't seen you in so long. So glad you decided to make it. You did threatened to drag me here, Carolyn, all the way from Leedshaw Court, and you believed me? Carolyn showed her teeth. Clever of you. Now drink up, won't you? It's so much better when you're fun. In her less-than-subtle way, she steered Vivian to the frenzy of the floor. Somebody I've been meaning to make you meet, my dear, since well before your self-imposed exile made you scarce. A son of an old friend of your uncle's, and not so hard to look at either with his bright green eyes. Thomas Frostman, here she is, you handsome man, the girl I was telling you about. Yes, this is Colton Airlight's niece, the elusive Vivian. Who, Vivian interrupted, is not interested in being set up right now. Thank you, Carolyn. A pleasure, Thomas, I'm sure. Frostmane, whose eyes corresponded with the cool green violence of his dinner coat, took the slight in stride and backed away, shrugging with a slight mocking bow. Really, Vivian, where was the use in all that? Carolyn pursued her off the dance floor, hounding, needling all the way back into a quiet corner. I put myself out there for you, you know. 
And then, when that didn't work, she tried, And I suppose you're just embarrassed by us all, by your own family, is that it? And when Vivian deflected that line of attack, Carolyn's eyes narrowed shrewdly, and she said, Unless you've got some bow of yours already. Nothing of the sort, said Vivian. But her breezy voice stank with an undercurrent of confusion and regret as she remembered returning home and finding the smell of Wren's sweat on her skin, the green residue of Cat John's spittle on the bathroom mirror, and Carolyn Slinger's was a social animal red in tooth and claw. She always scented weakness. You do, don't you? Her scandalized whisper practically a shriek. Who is he, then? Who is he? Some scruffy brute from Tin Jaw Heights or Sinful Round? Or perhaps a shaggy-headed butcher's boy from Stockyard Grange or Slaughter Gardens? Her interest was keen, vicarious, prurient. There is no man, said Vivian. But Slingers laughed and licked thin lips. We'll have it from you soon enough, my girl, I promise you. Now tell me, if there was a man... Where would you have met? And hypothetically, how long would it be before he put his... But before Carolyn could illustrate her hypothetical, something in the crowd made her tongue clap to the roof of her mouth and fall silent. Oh no, thought Vivian. Here's trouble. For it was her uncle who had appeared in the crowd, which parted around him like deer around a stalking tiger. The police commissioner ambled at his heels like a rumpled jackal, grandly ignored as he whinged about some concern or other. But the trouble walked at his other side, resting a light hand on his sleeve, a woman much younger than Carolyn and softer-skinned, filling the curves of her satin dress like summer wind. Colton! Colton, over here! At the sound of Carolyn's voice, that summer wind dissipated back into the crowd, and Colton Airlight wheeled his cool green with just a trace of wry smile. Not a few young men in the crowd had eyes just like his. The squatters, the commissioner was saying, as the women approached. Of course, there will always be squatters, Needler. Colton gave a middling approximation of being happy to see Carolyn. With his silver hair, square-cut jaw, and rakish, once-broken nose, Vivian could see why she might choose to believe... He was happy. But I'm sure your men are used to things like that by now. No, 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 there's nothing new to it, said Needler with his slanting grin, a man whose uniform never seemed to fit his body, no matter how expensively tailored. Not our first time tramping the boards of that particular stage. But what about the press? They'll have a field day. Let me worry about the press, Needler. Ah, Carolyn, you've never looked more beautiful. And Vivian, what a pleasant surprise. His expression, on seeing his niece, was that of a cat-lover greeting someone's not-unpleasant dog. Needler, by contrast, was immediately in her personal space, cloying and obsequious with his doffed cap and smoothed-over greasy hair. "'But what of you, Miss Airlight?' he said. She could smell the crushed cumin seeds on his breath. "'I am told you may have first-hand reconnaissance to share with us.' She took a half-step back, wearing a brittle smile. I'm not sure what you mean, Commissioner. He's talking about the drill barn muse, said Colton, ignoring Carolyn as she tried to whisper seductively in his ear. I'm buying it. The blood clotted in Vivian's heart. To do what with? Make money, of course, said Colton. What, you thought I was going to put up an orphanage? But the problem... 
said Needler, sliding back into the conversation and Vivian's space, is that there's a community of squatters who've moved in and think they own the place. A whole tent city down by the sumps. A public blight, said Colton. We can't be having it. Oh, yes, oh, yes, wretched, dangerous. Needler shook his head violently, briefly, unplastering his comb-over with a squelch. Do you know it? I'm familiar, said Vivian. I often walk through Drillbarn Mews. Unaccompanied? Needler's thin eyebrow shot up. I wouldn't be so sure, muttered Carolyn into her glass. Good God, Vivian, I didn't realize you were living quite so rough as that, said Colton, looking down his nose. Drillbarn Mews, we have to get you out of there last week. I actually happen to like it. Vivian pointed her pointed chin at him. Better than Silkwater Ark, anyway. Why? For aesthetic reasons? Colton's gift was for making people feel stupid. What do you actually like down there? The poverty? Garbage? Of course not. What you like is the feeling that you're not beholden to our bourgeoisie way of life. Am I wrong? Well, it's childish, Vivian. Cover yourself in dirt all you like, but Ashwind Hall is still your home. My home, countered Vivian, is an attic flat in Leedshaw Court. For now, while you insist upon it, he shrugged. But you'll tire soon enough and learn what the poor who you think are your friends already know. It's better to be rich. He spread his arms at the opulence around him, at the food, the lovely clothes, the bright mirrors and songbirds in their hidden, gilded cages. After all, you're here now, aren't you? You eat my food and drink my drink. Vivian couldn't think of anything to say that wouldn't sound petty. Colton Airlight looked down at her with a thin smile, and then glanced to his shoulder to share that smile with Carolyn. Needler, unfortunately, was the one who came to her rescue by changing the subject. But about those squatters, Vivian. He wriggled himself into her silence. Perhaps we could go on a scouting expedition together, you, you and I, to see the way the landscape lies. Then afterwards we... Oh, give it a rest, Craddock. By now, Slinger's voice was a little slurry from drink. She isn't going to punch your ticket, so leave the wretched girl alone. Now, Carolyn. Colton's voice was mild. That isn't any way to treat our friend. But the bar was sunk, and red-faced, the commissioner excused himself. Colton, sensing an out, professed that he had to go smooth things over and disappeared into the crowd in search of... summer wind. Before long, Carolyn had grown heavy and gin-flavored at Vivian's shoulder, and the younger woman had to help her not quite climb the winding stairs, and then had to not quite haul her down the hall to bed. Vivian... Half asleep, Carolyn's voice was a rising mumble from the white pillows. Vivian was still catching her breath by the door, but already the older woman had writhed herself into a tangle of sheets in the moonlight of the open window. I'm sad these days. So sad. So sad. And I don't know why. For a moment, Vivian lingered at the door, wanting to help. But she had no answers Carolyn Slingers would remember, much less want to hear. And so she turned and vanished into the darkness of the upper floor. On her way back down the veering, night-dimmed Prussian halls, she encountered her uncle standing chest on chest within the door frame of a guest room with a young, curved woman in her satin dress. They were muttering and whispering together. 
His lips were inches from her ear. A younger Vivian's instinct would have been to duck her head aside and pass by, pretending she'd seen nothing. But something had changed inside her. This time, she turned and interrupted. Uncle Colton, before I go... His face turned up in surprise, eyes wide and a little stern. Satin dress looked up as well, sparing Vivian a look of contempt, her tender hands wrapped vine-like around Colton's collar. About the drill barn muse, I know the place well. It isn't worth it. Put your money somewhere else. At this, a sneer condensed about the coldly shaven jaw. Well, thank you for your concern, Vivian. I'll make sure to pass your insights to the board. At this, Vivian stared him in the eyes, then shrugged, then turned aside and strode down the hall with fists clenched cold and a sudden acrid hatred in her throat. She never returned to Ashwind Hall after that. Except for once. By now, it was Vivian's and Wren's want to roam together through the derelicts and tailing ponds, to watch wild ducks land and nest in the tainted pools of the drill barn mews, waters just now, at last, beginning to run clear from their mystery sources in the red brick mountaintops. Their want to watch sunset carve surreal angles through unreal landscapes, to trespass shaky buildings and tread rope bridges twixt secret patches of the sky. From time to time, they saw the goblin, lighting small explosions or building elaborate channel systems off the sump so he could funnel frog spawn into the shallow pool on the cobblestones and then stamp them into red slurry and lap the pulp on all fours like a dog, or else throwing rocks through old windows with his powerful arm or dragging a whole beef carcass bloody through the streets from whatever suburban stockyard he had busted the locks of. The streets of Drill Barn Muse would echo from time to time with the distant eruption of his inept stills. Sometimes he would take an unwashed smelting bat and use it to ferment vast quantities of pond scum and beef blood and poison berries, creating a wretched mead which he would drink until he shat torrents of black fluid which would congeal on the factory floors into an impervious, stinking lacquer until he vomited fistfuls of red, bristling worms which burrowed into the bricks and died there. Other times, he would just sit on the roofs as they did, watching geese crawl across the sky, or watching the mundane comings and goings of the sumpside squatter's camp, or moaning sad songs at the wind. His existence was one of solitude, but a kind of grandeur, Vivian found solace in the sight of his wretchedness, an inspiration from the indomitability of his example. All through autumn they lived like this. Vivian's other friends, other lives, other hopes all left in limbo. She worked her job as the typist at a paper mill, and then spent her evenings and days off wandering the summer jungle that sprouted up amongst the widening cracks of Drillbarn Mews. Wren was not always with her, no matter what closeness they shared, a distance always lingered between them, even when they walked hand in hand at sunset. They never spoke about what they were to each other, whether it was friendship or love or perverse attraction that held them in uneasy bond, despite all repelling forces. And Wren never gave up using Catjohn, those great red crystals which cut the insides of your mouth with their edges, 
filling you with the taste of chemicals and cinnamon and blood, even as they dissolved. It's for the pain, Wren told her one evening, as they watched the night's first twin stars fade against the black shards of reeds, against the faint vapor of the sump. Vivian had not asked. With their relationship so tenuous, so undefined, Vivian felt she had no business trying to save Wren, felt it would have been disrespectful to try though in her private heart she still recoiled sometimes at her lover's missing teeth, her smell and coarse touch. Yet at other times a burning compassion filled her, animated by great regard, reciprocated understanding, and a great, she dared not think the word, love. You don't owe me an explanation for yourself, she said. All the same. Wren's shirt was loose and shapeless, it had once belonged to a man much larger than her, and its buttons slipped easily from their shapeless eyes as she revealed the great scar, great crater on the left side of her chest, which Vivian had sometimes seen outlined by the moonlight, but which she had also never presumed to ask about. When the machine fell, it pinned me here, said Wren, and sat on top of me for six minutes before they could raise the jack. Since then, the pain has never stopped. There are other things that dull it, but Cat John is best. Left unsaid the reason why. It kills me slowest. Sometimes the pain would become terrible, and Wren would sink for days into the red-rimmed, copper-tasting stupor of the cube. She never let Vivian see her like this, told her friends in the shanty to turn her away if she came to call. But Vivian had seen the huddled forms and sinful round, the beatific stare and crimson lips turning slowly black, the eyes rolled back and bubbling up with prophetic ruby foam, the sweat, the soiled clothes, the quiet sobs of those returned afterward to the wretched home of their bodies. She never tried to see Wren in this condition. She could not bring herself to do that. I'm sorry, Wren said when she returned one night with Red Crow's feet at summer's end. It was the first time she'd ever apologized. You haven't done anything to me, said Vivian. All the same. They walked for a while. Twilight and the drill barn muse transformed as always by the drone of Dumbledores and cluster flies, the drift of pollen on the afterglow. I wish I could be someone else for you, Wren suddenly exclaimed. I wish I had something. I wish I was something. I wish... I didn't smell like piss all the time. The shame which crushed Vivian in that moment had the weight of a machine. That she could be disgusted by this person she loved. That she'd spent so long between commitment and withdrawal. Between the muse she loved and the silk water arc she told herself she'd left behind. I don't... But she didn't know what to say. She didn't love Wren for the sake of what Wren would be if she were different. She loved Wren for herself... All human life is death and sickness and decline. In death and sickness and decline we have to matter, otherwise none of us ever will. But she didn't say this out loud, only took Wren by the hand and linked their arms. I'm here right now, was what she said. Later they found evidence of the first demolition teams, the scars of iron bars and ropes and dynamite, all chewing through the borders of the muse. Then, after that, the handbills of eviction, 
Drill Barn Muse is private property, they read. All trespassers subject to arrest. Rough paper, cheap ink diluted gray, plastered with flower glue round the crumbling walls like abjuration marks. The name on those posters at the bottom. Airlight and copper grain property holdings. Airlight, said Wren. That's your name. A hollowness in Vivian's throat. I'm sorry, Wren. But Wren only took Vivian's hand and linked their arms. You haven't done anything to me, she said. One morning, not long after, Vivian woke to a feeling of dread. She cleaned herself, threw on clothes, and left her attic flat without drinking coffee. A gray, cold day, with the sun white between shifting billows of cloud, shifting curtains of sleet. The streets with their Sunday quiet, all but empty. She arrived at the rusted-out fence of Drill Barn Mews and climbed the bowels of old buildings, through derelict stairs, high galleries, cellars broken open to the chilly day, among skeletons of vast machines and the vast absences of their vanished bodies, that dread rotting her out as empty as the mews themselves. No golden light to enliven old red stones today, no violet twilight to slice them up mysterious, just an empty district of the city, crumbling, lifeless. When she arrived at the shores of the sump, she found them empty, the shanty gone, no sign it had ever been there but for a few scraps of tarp upon a nail, a few chewed bones, a spot of blood upon the cobblestones. For a moment she stood in that windy emptiness, thinking it must be some kind of joke, a prank where if she waited just a moment longer, all the friends she'd made here would jump out and shout, surprise. But she waited and waited and after a long time murmured, Wren? But had no answer. Then she understood what had happened. They had all been taken away. To where or what end she did not know. To the Iron Jubilation prison, or to some work camp on the border, or out to sea and drowned all chained together in the cold gray wash, she didn't know. But the dread in her heart came to cold completion as she realized how much time she'd wasted in her indecision. Now she would never see Wren again. And then, as loss and despair threaded gray fingers through her ribs, she heard the far-off ring of boots against the cobblestones and dogs barking and the shouts and voices of men. She was in terrible danger, and she ran. Airlight footsteps touching off floors of herringbone brick, off creaking wooden steps and groaning boards that spanned the gaps of second-story windows, voices peeking behind her as the dogs caught her scent and the men gave chase, down further flights of stairs, through factory floors once screaming, now silted pools of grayish light, through doors she couldn't lock behind her, through alleyways which led not back to Leedshaw Court or on to Sledge Green, but deeper through the winding wall of the empty district. Slam! through double doors and double doors and double doors, through factories and factories until... Too late she recognized the space she'd broken into last. The shattered door, cathedral emptiness, the ashen spiral on the floor. Her skipping footsteps slowed, echoed through the upper vaults a long, slow moment after they had stopped. 
a creature staring at her from the vacant floor, from beside its dry fire. A goblin, strange to say, his black eyes slitting yellow at her, heavy arms green at rest across his ragged knees, black lips snarling silent round his fish-like yellowed teeth. For a moment they stared at one another, silent, girl and goblin. Then the creature rose with slow and easy strength to his feet, muscles hard and vivid in the grayish light, the metal blade rasping as it pulled across the floor to settle in his horrid fist. Then the doors burst open behind her, sending a wash of pallid light across the floor, a dozen men in uniform with two great dogs both straining at their leash. The goblin's pupils slitted down to filaments. Then Vivian darted to one side and sprang up a flight of wooden steps. The first shot came deafening, unlike anything she'd ever heard, a world-breaking sound. She threw herself up the last few stairs, covering head with hands as she landed hard and sprawled on the dusty shop floor of the second story. Then the true noise began. A yellow howl and pounding feet and guns cracking like thunder and the floor shaking in broken shards of windows shaking loose from their frames and the dogs baying and screaming and heavy wet noises and a man shrieking and more men shrieking and the gunfire never ending only rising in vile crescendo all the way to silence. She waited for some voice to call out, for some heavy footstep to sound upon the stair. Nothing. And after a long, long time, she dared to rise, dripping blood from long, dirty slivers in her forearm and leaving an absence, a dust angel on the floor. With halting steps, she dared descend the first half-flight of wooden stair. Below, where a floor of gray cement had been, now lapped the shores of a scarlet lake, here and there afloat atop the blood, like oil on water, a vibrant strand of vile green. The men were dead or fled, but mainly dead, hacked open by two-handed wounds or ripped at the juggler by fish-like teeth. Parts spilling out of them from so deep that the parts had no names. One Alsatian had been split like a pine log, the other gutted like a market trout. And there, in the midst of the red wreckage, crawling on hands and knees, the goblin. Her goblin. His chest a bullet-pounded hash of mints, all belching forth a vile blood-like liquid malachite, yet still alive, still gasping through ruined lungs, still trying to focus yellow-slitted eyes upon the light. At the sight of her, it collapsed forward into the blood, crawling, reaching, stretching to connect. With any fear forgotten, she ran to its side and threw herself down in the blood, clinging, lukewarm, seeping through her clothes to stain her skin. She took the creature's heavy body in her arms and rolled him over as best she could, cradled the dying thing like a child, the yellow eyes staring up at her, the green clawed hand reaching red and pointless for her cheek, leaving her smeared with dead men's blood. 
black lips parted and the goblin tried to speak, but only a green flood welled up between its teeth. A heavy cough, green splatter at the front of her dress, a rattled breath. Then it groped through the gore for its dropped blade. Too weak, its fingers couldn't close around the red-smeared hilt. So she reached out and took hold of it for him, and it was slick and disgusting to the touch, but she didn't notice that she pressed it into his grasp. And, with the last of his strength, he pressed it back into hers. Then, when he was sure she would not let the weapon fall, he released her, and with her, his final hold on life. Stillness. Silence in the drill barn muse, and she wept softly, rocking back and forth with the murdered creature in her arms, weeping because she'd loved him as she'd loved the wind, the crumbling brick, the sacral desuetude of the muse, as she loved Wren and Carolyn Slingers, and even her own wretched self, and all such strange and ruined things that deserved their own place within the world to be. At last, she let the body slide from slippery arms into the blood, and rose slowly with the fresh, cold wind running through her. In her hand, the goblin blade, this trust, this artifact, this relic of a murdered world. It hung as heavy as obligation in her hand. Night in the old abandoned quarter of the drill barn muse, all dark, all black with the fall of night, and only orange neon torches searing in the darkness as Craddock Needler's men combed through the bodies of their own and wondered at the body of the thing that killed them. The commissioner himself stood huddled in the freezing wind outside, smoking bitter cigarettes. A tall man standing nearby, gazing up through the night toward the dark hill where Silkwater Ark sparkled at the crest. Ashwind Hall, a gleaming jewel in its crown. He was silver-haired, a silver-threaded scarf around his neck. Well, Craddock, Colton said, turning to face him at last, what have you allowed to happen on my property? Ten men dead, Miss Airlight, and two dogs. The perpetrator, too. A bloody scandal. Airlight shook his head. Ten police? You know somebody will have to go down for this. I will, um... <clears throat> I will find someone suitable enough to take the blame, Mr. Airlight. See to it, and see, Craddock, that they're high-ranking enough to satisfy the press. Uh, of course, Mr. Airlight. Now, about these footprints. Footprints. In the blood... Your men said. The girls? Ah, uh, yes. Well, they lead back out toward... Um, the Ledshaw Court, we think. Hmm. <laughs> Bring her in, Craddock. Whoever she is. Destroy her. Send a message now before they get ideas up in Sinful Round. This was a one-off. All right? Find her and destroy her quickly. Nothing like this ever happens again. For once, Needler drew breath to offer a sharp answer. 
bring her in, just like that, with no leads and nothing to charge her with other than being at the scene of a crime. But he stopped himself. Not because he thought better of it, but because something over his employer's shoulder distracted him. A brightening light on the skyline, a red gem glowing on the crown of Silkwater Ark, casting beams of red-gold twilight down across the deadened sky to fall in curves and asymptotes across the drill-barn mews. What is it, Craddock? Colton snapped. But Needler only smiled. Nothing, sir. Just the thought of a little girl dragging around that goblin blade. Colton Airlight gave him a withering look and strode past. There are no such things as goblins, Craddock. Not at all, Mr. Airlight. Not at all. And as his backer vanished behind him, Needler stood at the heart of an empty district and looked up into the distances, and watched with a strange lightness in his heart, while Ashwind Hall was burning in the night. And up on the hill, in the home where she was raised, Vivian Airlight was walking hall to hall, her goblin blade freshly reddened with the blood of the policeman at the door. A burning brand was in her other hand, alighting every tapestry upon the wall and cracking every mirror's pane of glass. The goblin blade arose and fell and smashed the tiny locks of cages on the walls. And one by one, the burning songbirds flowed bringing twilight out through Ashwin's broken windows, and spread the fire from hall to hall to hall to hall. The Wrong Station is made possible with the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Patrons can listen to The Wrong Station ad-free, as well as get access to bonus episodes, discussions, and more. This week's episode, Goblin Blade, was written by Alexander Saxton and performed by Anthony Botello. Thank you to Tina D., Nate Henson, Queen Cam, David Williams, and Kyle Hagen for helping us keep the lights, well, off. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed on the piano by Elan Citrin, and arranged for the viola and performed by Viola Schmidt. You can follow The Wrong Station on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and email us at therongstation at gmail.com. And until next season, thank you for listening. <laughs>